Good morning, everybody. I wish a happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. Happy Mother's Day reminder to all you children out there. All right, let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your provision for us. We know that in eternity past, you laid out a plan. You knew in your omniscience that the, the, the race of mankind would fall. And in, in, in way back at the beginning, you put together a plan whereby your Son, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be born of a virgin and went to the cross, died for the sins of the world, was buried, and then you raised him from the dead three days later as an indication that whoever believes in your Son is justified forever. Father, this morning we do want to pray for the needs of the saints. I'd like to pray, Father, this morning for also the persecuted church. And we want to praise and thank you for all you've given us, especially your Son and your Word. May we concentrate on the Word today and be prepared to see the Holy Spirit direct us accordingly. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everyone. I asked that everybody pray this morning for um, Cheryl, her son, Ian, is in the ICU, intensive care unit this morning. Um, also, please keep Linda in prayer, because her father is now entering hospice, so he's, uh, he's having a tough time, too. Also, I'd like you to pray this morning for Ruth and Peter. They don't complain much, but they have some really difficult health issues that they're wrestling with. Please pray for them, for help. Um, and I just want to acknowledge the fact that I marvel at the fact that no matter what's going on, those folks are almost always here. So, bravo to you guys. All right. Uh, this month, the missionary organization that we're um, ten spending time thinking about praying for and supporting is Basic Training Bible Ministries. Basic Training Bible Ministries. Basic Training Bible Ministries is led by Gene Cunningham, and his wife Nan is his constant companion and support. Um, our, this was when we were um, talking about uh, Grace Bible Church Pakistan. Remember, they were opening up their new building, and there are, the, there are these two people right in the middle of this picture. Yeah, that's, that's Gene and Nan. They went all the way to Pakistan to be able to support uh, Fazl and Carrie John in that great, happy event. So that's the kind of people they are. Um, their mission includes evangelism, as well as the training of pastors and workers in remote regions of the world. They also establish Bible schools in Africa, in India, and Papua New Guinea. And then here in the United States and North America, as well as Australia, they conduct mission training camps. And they also train other people here to do the same thing. So as with all of the missionary organizations, we ask you to pray for them. We also ask you to support them in any way you can. Financially is very important in any other way. Some people have, uh, who have found opportunities giving their gifts to serve in a direct way with some of these missionary organizations, I ask you to consider that also. All right. Title of today's message is Let No One Boast in Men. Let No One Boast in Men. It comes from the uh, third chapter, 1 Corinthians. And we're going to see that passage in a minute. In fact, let's go there right now. 1 Corinthians 3.18. 1 Corinthians 3.18. While you're turning there, I can tell you that I forgot about two things to let you know about. So while you're turning there, I'll tell you. 
Heard from Pastor Kingsley a few times since last Sunday, and he has asked to extend his warmest appreciation to our congregation for our hospitality and generosity to him. I gave him a, a lot, I thought, of uh, Bible tracts before he left. So he emails me on Thursday and he says, I passed them all out. Can I get more? You know, that's the kind of guy he is. He's just action. So, In any event, so please keep that in prayer, his family as well as um, himself. Um, we're going to have an outreach session today. It is going to be the shortest outreach session on record. See, it slipped my mind when I was scheduling this that today is <clears throat> Mother's Day. So, um, But we're going to have it. We're basically going to look at, uh, I'm going to give you all the prayer list that we put together last time we got together, and you can add to it. And we'll just have a brief review on the gospel. It should take no more than 15 or 20 minutes. So again, outreach today in the family room, praying for the lost. That's what we're looking at. Um, also, I want to mention, too, that... Um, we're going to have a memorial service next Sunday for a lady named Candace Lehman. Some of you may know her. She's uh, been sick for a long, long time, so some of you may not. But she's a great inspiration, was a great inspiration to so many that knew her. Um, she was just dogged in her faith and in trusting in the Lord no matter what she went through. So we're going to honor her after service. Some of her family will be here as well. We encourage everybody that can to please join in on that memorial service next Sunday after service. Okay, again, 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no man deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise, truly wise. In other words, if somebody thinks they're wise according to the world, telling them they're wise, you've got to be pushed out of the way and realize that you're a fool and then really become wise by learning God's wisdom. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, this is in Job, he, who, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. The wise in their craftiness. And again, from Psalms, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. I'm thinking of putting that um, as a bumper sticker on my television. When I'm watching all these so-called experts, you know what I'm saying? The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So that no one boasts in men. There it is. That's going to be the unifying factor, the unifying message as we go through our entire passage this morning from 3.18 through 4.5. Let no man, let no one boast in men. Now here, of course, he's talking about those rivalries and divisions that we've seen in the church from the very beginning of this letter. He says, all things belong to you. They're fighting about who belongs to Paul and who belongs to Apollos. He says, you got it backwards. All things, including Paul and Apollos, belong to you. God has given them all to you. You ought to, to take all of the gifts that God has given you. All right? The planter, the waterer, and everything else. And then he tells what everything else is. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, God has, has given us eternal life. He's conquered death. Things present, no things to come. And by the way, notice there's no things in the past. Those are forgetting what lies in the past, but reaching forward to the future. Things are present and things to come, not only in this life, but forever. All these things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now that's what an amazing picture. And it's totally airtight. You see it? Totally airtight. All things belong to us. We belong to Christ. 
Christ belongs to God. In other words, God the Father is holding this all together. He's the one who's given all these gifts in his grace. All right, now to chapter 4, verse 1. One of the more unfortunate chapter breaks, okay, because it's really continuing on the same idea. Let a man regard us in, in, in the remaining verses of chapter 3 that we just read. The focus was on the people, the church. Now the focus will turn to the servants, to the pastors, the, apolo- the um, apostles, and so forth. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, it's Christ and the mysteries of God that really matter. We're simply servants. We do what we're told. We're stewards. We've had something given to us as a precious resource, and we ought to make sure it's used wisely. But that's the leaders, but that's nothing, because all that matters is Christ and the mysteries of God. Then he goes on, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. Notice that. Notice what God thinks is important about his servants, about his stewards. Not success, but very simply being trustworthy. Able to be trusted with whatever it is the Lord has given them as their calling in life. And and, and what he wants them to accomplish. Which, by the way, nobody else knows except God. Sometimes we don't. And let's be honest, we don't even know how God's using us at times. Things that we might consider insignificant are very significant to God. So we're no better a judge of ourselves than anybody else. Notice. But it is, but verse 3, but to me it's a very small thing. In other words, it's meaningless. It's, 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 it's trivial that I may be examined by you. He says, go ahead. That doesn't mean anything. If you examine and critique you know, an apostle or a pastor or any leader, an elder. And he says, uh, that's a small thing. We're not going to pay attention to that. It's a small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, notice, I do not even examine myself. And he's saying, I'm as, I am just as likely to be judging myself wrong as the other people are in judging me. That's something. We're going to see how... Freeing that is when we get there. And then verse 4, he goes on. I am conscious of nothing against myself. (laughs) You might think that's pretty arrogant, right? What do you mean? You have all kinds of faults, Paul. You better get before the Lord. And you better straighten out your ways, Paul. I can't believe you said that, Paul. Well, it's Scripture, John, so he means it. I'm conscious. Notice how it's worded, though. I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, what your conscience is telling you is irrelevant. He's saying the only thing that matters in, the, in terms of being examined, finally critiqued, and, and what, your, what your service has meant. He says, your conscience won't even tell you that. Your conscience may be telling you one thing, but the truth is something else. He says, I'm not, if, I don't care if my conscience acquits me. I'm still not acquitted. Why? Because the only one whose examination counts is the Lord's. The one who examines me is the Lord. That ought to be the a reference for all of us. When we evaluate, you know, quote, how we're doing in Christianity or in the Lord and so forth, the first thing you want to do is just eliminate anything you've heard from anybody else. Then eliminate the inner critic, get rid of all of that, and just put yourself before the Lord. And when you put yourself before the Lord, you have to say, you know what, Lord, I know you're not finished with me yet. And the last thing you want me to do is to be introspective and guilt-ridden, 
You want me to keep moving to the things to come that you've given me. That's the attitude Paul has. Notice what he says in verse 5. Therefore, here's an instruction. Do not go on passing judgment. But notice what he puts after that. Before the time. In other words, now is not the time for any judgment at all. It's not the time for other people to be judging people. It's not the time for you to be judging, use passing verdict on yourself. Why? Because things are still in progress. This, you're in the middle of the race. Can you imagine if somebody, a runner, you know, he says, you know what? It's a timing him. They do all this crazy stuff. They time him every tenth of a mile. And then he looks and he's like, oh, he's like 1.5 seconds behind at the first mile marker. Can you imagine if he said, oh, that's the final verdict and stops running? It'd be silly. But we do that. We do that. We see something that's wrong. We feel like we're a failure and we're tempted to quit on the plan of God. We're, we're tempted to be discouraged and depressed guilt-ridden, which is the last thing the Lord wants. What does He want you to do? Keep running. It's really simple. Anyway, He says, do not go passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. When's He going to come? That the rapture. So I want you to think about that. There is to be no judging at all until Christ comes, the rapture. What does that mean? It means for all of our time here on planet Earth, there should be no judging No passing a sentence on anybody else. No reaching a verdict. You know how you reach verdicts about people? Ah, they'll never change. I'm writing them off. All of that. That's not That's not what we're supposed to do. Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Only He knows, and He is the only one who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. By the way, in, in this, we tend to think that that means like evil and sin. It might, but it really just means the things that are hidden. They're not visible yet. Okay, And disclose the motives of men's hearts. And that's one thing that none of us can see in another person. The motives of their hearts, we don't know. As a matter of fact, we have a hard time discerning our own motives. That's why I said I'm conscious of nothing, but I'm not acquitted by that. Because I won't really know what my motives really were until the Lord comes on the scene and tells me. Then, notice, each man's praise will come to him from God. Maybe some will get praised a little, and some will get praised a lot. But that's the reward. Each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, starting here in the passage we just read, from verse 18 of chapter 3 all the way to verse 5 in chapter 4, Paul really is giving his wrap-up. He's basically going to go back and kind of sum up what he's been teaching from verse 18 in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 17, which we just finished last week. And he's he's given us the big takeaways, right? Because there's a lot there, but he's saying, listen, as we move on here, I'm going to give you the big takeaways that you need to have before we move on. There are two paragraphs or sections. Chapter 3, the last 18 through 23, the last five, six verses, and then chapter 4, 1 to 5. There's two units. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice uh, the very first verse in the first paragraph. What is it? Verse 18. Let no man deceive himself, right? Has to do with perception. Don't deceive yourself. Okay. Now how about the first sentence in, parag- in the second paragraph, 4.1? Let a man regard us 
in this manner. You see, he's dealing with perceptions versus reality. He's saying, you are very prone to deceiving yourself, and you are way off in how you regard us. That's basically what he's saying. All right? Well, what is the bottom line? Let no one boast in men. Don't boast in how you see yourself. Don't boast that one of, you're, you're critiquing one pastor against the other, and you're boasting in one and crit- criticizing the other. No, let a man regard us in this manner. We'll see what that is in a little while. So basically, what is he saying here? He's saying, I want now to talk about how each individual ought to see himself. Doesn't everybody want to know that? How should I see myself? Right? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? We're always interested in that. And it's okay. The Lord's going to give us some information about ourselves. And then how each person ought to regard the apostles, the leaders, in fact, anybody in, in the church. But here he's talking about the apostles and the leaders. So that's basically the structure. There's two main points. How, how each individual ought to see himself, don't deceive yourself, and how each person ought to regard the apostles and leaders. And he's going to go on and tell us how to do that. So here's the thing. Okay, When we start thinking about what wisdom we have and so forth, we need to first realize that the world's wisdom is foolishness. In other words, if you're evaluating yourself according to the world's wisdom, you're deceiving yourself. Now, that, that may sound like a simple statement that we've heard again, and we have, but there's a lot there. We're going to get into this a little bit about what does it mean to take the world's wisdom and evaluate yourself accordingly? We all do it, all right? But it does meaningless when we do those things, all right? So what he's saying is to them, he's saying, listen, you are nothing but fools because you're causing divisions in the church based on how the world operates. He says that has no place in the church. You're foolish when you try to take the so-called wisdom of the world, how the world thinks, and then bring it and apply it to judging people in the church. There's no place for that, he says. Why? Well, one of the reasons, the big reason, the, the reason he says let no one boast in men is very simple. Human judgments are inherently flawed. I think I should put that on my mirror. One on the TV, one on the mirror. Human judgments are inherently flawed. We are not good judges of one another. We're not even good judges of ourselves. We're not good judges of pastors and leaders. We're not. Stop it, is what he's going to say. Stop it. You're no good at it. Why is that? Well, first of all, because you have to think about where judging comes from. I mean, we read all over the place in the Bible that as new creation in Christ, you know, do not judge one another. He's saying, look, that doesn't come from the new man. It comes from the flesh. So right away there, it's flawed. But the other thing that's basically um, the kicker on this is that we never know all the facts. We never do. Oh, you know, we think we do. We think we have television programs. There's somebody on trial, and they portray it as, wow, you know, depending on what side the lawyers are in the show, usually it's the prosecution. Wow, they got all the facts. They did a great job, you know. They don't know all the facts. Even in a kind of a court case, all the facts aren't known. And if they're not known, then certainly by the time attorneys do their thing and try to twist and spin and overlook and all of that, the jury certainly is not able to understand all the facts. It's an indictment. It's not an indictment of our system. It's the best in the world. It's an indictment of people. That's how people behave. We don't know all the facts, but we judge anyway. 
We see somebody, and based on a few things, it's amazing to me how some people can be with somebody for like 10 minutes, and boom, they think they know everything about them. You know people like that? The people who come here one week, and boom, they're judging us. One week, they're here for an hour, they only listen for 10% of it. We don't know all the facts, and we never will. So stop using an inherently flawed piece of equipment, our ability to judge. Who can discern things properly? Well, we, heard, we learned in chapter 2, only the Holy Spirit, right? These things are spiritually appraised. God is the only one who can judge the quality of each man's work. Now, it's interesting. This is all a restatement of what Paul's been teaching. But here, from verse 18 to chapter 3, through chapter 4, verse 5, he's taking a new approach with the same material. You know what he's doing? He's, com- he's going to use commands now. Right, right directly to the people. He's been indirect in the sense that he's been saying things like, you know, here, here's what a man does, here's what this is, you know. But now he's going right to the people. And he's saying, I'm going to command you now. He's challenging now at every saint, us included, put away all that worldly wisdom. And put away all that fleshly judging. Stop acting like fools. That's what you are when you judge another. Even when you judge yourself. You're a fool. You don't know all the information. Let's be honest. When we judge ourselves, usually, it's kind of like we have the, there's this whole us, and we take this little microscope, and we're looking at a few cells and saying, oh, that's horrible. In other words, something that happened recently. How often do you step back at least, and say, I want to look at the whole picture of my life in Christ. From the first time I believed all the way to today and everything in between. And you'll see a lot of this, right? But it won't be all that. But we don't look at that. We just see one thing about us and we judge ourselves. That's foolishness. That's what he's saying. Learn God's wisdom and keep your eyes there. Always the gospel, the word of the cross. Salvation, redemption, eternal life justification. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Forget what lies behind. Reach forward to what lies ahead. That's what we're told to do. Keep learning the Word. Keep, keep running your race. Don't lie to yourself any longer. And then start seeing us, in this case, the ministers, properly. Or very simply, change how you see yourself and change how you see others. That's, what he's, that's how he's summing up. He issues a total of four commands. I want you to look at the passage again, and you'll see them. Okay, We've already seen two of them, but I want you to see all four now. Four commands, two in each paragraph. First one is in verse 18. Let's read it again. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he's wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. The issue there is deceiving oneself with the wrong kind of wisdom. That's the first thing he says. Then in verse 21, I want you to notice the second command. Chapter 3, verse 21. So So then let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. (coughs) Don't deceive yourself. Don't boast in any man, including yourself. Third command, chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us, who's us, the apostles, the teachers, and so forth, leaders, elders. Let a man regard us in this manner, which manner? As servants of Christ 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so often, that's the last thing on people's mind when they're regarding an elder or a pastor. They never, it's very hard for us anyway to say, you know what? He's God's servant. He's a servant of Christ. He's a servant and he is carrying out the commands of God, most of which I don't know in terms of his unique calling. I'm not, I don't really know what God has given as the treasure for this man to be a steward of. So I'm not going to judge that man. That's what he's saying. He's saying, this is the way I want you to regard the ministers, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, where are our eyes supposed to be on the servant? If you are, let me ask you this. You're in a restaurant and you're looking forward to a great meal. And then the meal comes out, right? And all you can do is pick apart the waiter. You're not even looking at the meal, right? That's how sick we are. But that's what we do when we criticize one another or we criticize a minister or somebody serving in any capacity in the church. And we do. And so rather than looking at Christ, we try to pick apart the servant. Rather than looking at the mysteries themselves that God has provided for us, we, have, we find some fault with the elder, whoever it is that's the steward of that. Well, you know, he didn't give me enough or whatever. We make all of these kind of evaluations, not realizing that we have nothing except what has come from God. And that's where our focus ought to be. And then finally in verse 5, the last one. Therefore, this is a summing up, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. <clears throat> Isn't that so hard? You know what I'm saying? We can't even wait. Okay, so we're in a social situation, right? Somebody rubs us the wrong way, right? Oh, we want to say something right there to them. We think we're superheroes if we keep our mouth shut until we get in the car. And then it's like... Well, what he's saying is, is keep that mouth shut until Christ comes back. Now, that's a long time. It could be tomorrow, but in any event, this, everything will change then. So hold off. Don't make any judgments before Christ returns. Ooh. Can you imagine how much better church life would be? Both here in the congregation and, and the body of Christ as a whole. If people really did that, if people just held off their judging, their complaining, their criticizing, their verdicts, until Christ comes back. You know, wait till your Lord comes home. Right? Wait till your Father comes home. Boom, boom. But I mean, that's the thing, right? We, 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 like even, like on a human level, you can have your squabble, but then somebody's going to come in and they're going to be the one who rules on the verdict. Say, wait till that person comes. Well, in our case, as Christians, that person is Jesus Christ. When he comes with the, with the, um, in, in the cloud and brings us up to him. Don't deceive yourself. Don't boast in men. Regard the servants of Christ in a proper manner. And don't go passing judgment before the time. That's the direct commands that he gives to the Corinthians and to us. Again, don't deceive yourself. Don't pretend you think you're wise. Don't think more highly of yourself. Rather, become a fool. Say, I know nothing until I know God's wisdom. That never boast in men, yourself or anybody else. Regard the servants of God in a proper way. And don't go passing judgment before the time. And again, this can all be summed up by the second command. Let no one boast in men. Don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in the servants of Christ, the pastors, elders. Don't boast in your judgment. Let no one boast in men. 
Please turn to Philippians 3.3. Philippians 3.3. Same message here. Let no one boast in men. Philippians 3.3. Don't deceive yourself thinking you're so wise. Don't, don't regard ministers and pastors and elders the wrong way. Don't pass judgment. Don't boast in men. Philippians 3.3. 3. Just one verse. I'm going to wait till everybody gets there. Philippians 3.3. For we are the true circumcision. What does that mean? We worship in the Spirit of God. It's about the Holy Spirit. We glory in Christ Jesus. We don't boast in men. We boast in the Lord. Let he who boasts, boast in Christ Jesus. But here's the kicker. How do we do all that? We put a little confidence in the flesh every once in a while. Is that what Paul writes? No. He, he said, you put confidence in the flesh of the people you look up to. No. Put confidence in your own flesh, because you are the keeper and master of your soul. No. What does he say? Put no, zero, none, nada, confidence in the flesh. None. It, it, apply this. Please apply this. Because you'll find out that your life will be a lot happier when you do. When you stop putting any confidence in other people's judgments, when you stop putting confidence in yourself, you'll be freed up. It might sound negative, doesn't it? Don't put any confidence in the flesh. Yeah, but it's really, really, really positive at, uh, news and advice. It really, really, you'll see more of that. No confidence in the flesh. That includes any preacher or leader or evangelist. None. Don't put any confidence in the flesh. Oh, you can put confidence in the things of the Lord about that person when he's preaching the truth. That's fine. But the person himself, no confidence. That includes any other people, any other members of the congregation. Don't put confidence in their flesh. And yourself. Don't put any confidence in your flesh either. Again, another way that Paul, that Paul gives this right here in 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter 1. If you want to go back there now. Don't boast in men. It's all what God's done. And that's, by the way, that's something you'll never, never see the world present. When they present their wisdom, it's never what God has done. Never. We're going to see that in a little while. I've got an interesting illustration of that. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by His doing, God's doing, the Holy Spirit's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And it's he who became to us wisdom from God. Where do you look for all the wisdom of God? Christ Jesus. This isn't complicated, folks. His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who Christ became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. There's a plan of God. So that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Simple. See, again, this is simple. When you're trying to evaluate all kinds of different people and figure out who to praise and who to condemn, it's a complicated life. You're always, you know, different people are coming in and out. They're behaving one way one week and one way the other. Your standards seem to shift and flip-flop all over the place. That's a complicated life. But when you do this, it's simple. Just boast in the Lord. God is simple. I'm hammering this home because it's really, really true. We've seen this so many ways. 
Flesh, man, the world, complicated. False religion, complicated. You know, you have these lists of false religions that are like 18 pages of things you got to do to please God. By the way, unfortunately, it's in Christian churches like you'd never believe these days. Complicated. What's simple? Keep your eyes on Christ. Simple. Always simple. The gospel, simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So how do these commands in 1 Corinthians 3.18 to 4.5, how do those commands, we just saw them, how do they apply to us? We know why Paul was talking about this with the Corinthians, because they were causing divisions and they used the wrong kind of wisdom, and they were judging apostles and so forth. How does it apply to us now, today, here? Because after all, that's what Paul is summing up. He said, I'm going to sum this thing up while you're considering how this applies to you, Corinthians. Stop deceiving yourself. Stop boasting in mere men. Regard us ministers in the right way. And do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait till the Lord comes. All right, let's go back to 3.18. Look at 3.18 to 20. Let's get started in asking, how does this apply to us? What are we to take away? How are we to change our thinking on the basis of what Paul's pointing out? 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, notice the two words that count are thinks and this age. Those are three words. But what they think they are, which they're not, and they're using the wisdom of this age, this world, this fallen world, he must become foolish. You know, in evil be babes. And remember that's right, in evil be foolish. When you're dealing with the things of the world, be foolish about it. Don't trust it. Don't try to take it on. Don't, don't try to present yourself as better because of the world's standards. Be foolish. And then you really become wise when you start learning how God thinks in His Word. Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. It is written. God is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And they all are. Worldly wise people are crafty people. They're always trying to think you, think you think they're better than you, put one over on you, be slick, be faster in their talk and in their thinking. They'll have a string of logic and they'll leave out something, but they're going on so quickly and so assuredly you miss it. They took it right out, but you didn't even see it wasn't there. But the Lord catches them. We might not. And again, verse 20, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So in other words, Relax. When you think you're being buffaloed, you are. When you, when you see the worldly wise and people are getting praised by everybody out there, just realize, you know what, God's got this. The Lord knows the foolishness and the uselessness of how they think. By the way, who's most likely? Here, here's an here's a, uh, application. Here's a wise thing to ask. In verse 18, who is the most likely to deceive himself? Don't you want to know that? Don't you want to say, you know, okay, this deception thing. Who's most likely to do it? Well, what do we always do when we have a question like that? Look at the neighborhood. What comes right after it? If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Those are the people who are the most likely to be deceived. Someone who thinks he is wise in this age. There is more hope for a fool than for him, that's Proverbs. 
That's the people who are most like. You see, it seems not to make sense from a worldly point of view. But think about it. Those are the people that are the most deceived. Why? Because arrogance blinds. Thinking a lot of how you think blinds you. Right? Why? Because it's a flawed instrument, gang. The way you think is flawed. So if you're, if you're basing your evaluation of yourself on that, you are really deceived. Really deceived. When worldly people start talking about how wise and intelligent you are, be careful. Because that is a real stumbling block where you're likely to become deceived. So let's, take a, let's ask this question. What is the wisdom of this age? Who are the people who think they're wise in our country today, in our culture, in our society? Well, re- religious leaders perhaps? Aren't there so many of them coming off with they're wiser and holier than everybody else? You bet. Yeah, what does that mean? They're deceived. <laughs> How about political leaders? Don't they think they know what's best? They're going to tell you what's what? Should we listen to all that? No. Why? Because they're deceived. They're thinking the way the world thinks. And it changes. It's like 2001, September 12th. Let's go to war. Right? Remember that? Let's go to war. Let's destroy. Let's go to all these countries and turn them over to democracies. Right? Then we tried it. And we couldn't do it. So now we're like, we got, our, we got our tail between our legs and we're coming on back. I know I'm preaching, but I'm just illustrating, okay? I'm illustrating the fact that our perception of things changes. And those who we look to as wise in the moment, if we step back 10 or 15 or 20 years later, they don't look so wise anymore. We don't. The judgments we made at a certain point in time, we look back on them 20 years later and we say, or even 10 or even 5, and we're saying, I didn't know what I was talking about. By the way, that's humility, which is something that the worldly wise almost never get to. So, yeah, political leaders. How about media personalities? Aren't you tired of that? Aren't you tired of celebrities telling you what's right and what's wrong? Right? Why? Because they think more highly of themselves. They think they're really the wise people. After all, somebody goes on a stage and 30,000 people roar their approval. That can get to your head. You make a blockbuster movie and get an Academy Award, well, look at me. I must have something going for me that nobody else has. You know, Be careful when the world praises you because it's a time where you're going to get arrogant and start really deceiving yourself. Intellectuals. Do any of them come across as wiser than the rest of us, maybe, once in a while? Mm-hmm. Intellectuals. Are, now, what the, what's the problem with Intellectuals. They only use their intellect. They think that being smart is the answer to everything in life. Well, it's not. It's not. If that were true, only smart people would be saved. And in fact, smart people are some of the most difficult people to believe in Christ. Yeah. Wisdom of this age. Billionaires, right? Everybody wants to know. What's so-and-so going to invest in next, right? That's real wisdom. Why? Well, because what we're doing then is we're applying a worldly standard, right? The richer, the better. And we may not say it that way, but that's what we think. Aren't too many people walking around asking homeless people for advice. All kinds of people are going to the rich and the famous and so forth and the the speakers and the self-improvement crowd and all of that asking them for advice. Think about it. It's very tempting because it's all around us. 
CEO, CEOs, billionaires. You know, everyone's interviewing the CEO of this tech company and that tech company and all of that, as if they know anything. As if somebody who came out of Harvard and didn't even graduate now all of a sudden knows everything about the wisdom of life. No, they know how to make money. They're smart. They don't have the wisdom because it only comes from one place, God. The qualifications of the people I just mentioned mean nothing to God. God, He sees them for what they really are. He sees all of us that way. He's not impressed with their, with their genius. He knows how they really think. And He tells us that the speculations of the worldly wise are of no value. None. Okay. We've been talking about wisdom quite a bit over the last few weeks because Paul talks about it. But now it's time to ask a simple question. What exactly is wisdom? Well, first of all, there are two kinds. Okay? This is the key. This is what separates the, I'm not say the men from the boys, but the Christians who are paying attention and everybody else. There's the wisdom of the world and there's the wisdom of God. These two are totally opposed to one another. The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. They're totally opposed. Start to think of it that way. You know, we always want to be in the middle. Well, I'll take a little bit over here and a little bit over there. You know, we try to rationalize that. Well, you know, the Lord never knew about nuclear weapons, so he can't possibly give me any advice in the 21st century. Well, first of all, he'd known about them since eternity past. All right. And second of all, all the answers to life are in the Bible. Not all the, not all the things the world wants to know. You know, they actually think they can go back billions and billions of years and tell you everything that happened. Think how ridiculous that is. I can't even go in my life one week and tell you what happened. Right? But these are the things that the worldly wise want to spend all the time on. So, there are two wisdoms, and they're both spoken of as wise, but only one of them is. Well, what is wisdom generally? Generally, it's this. It's mastering or trying to master the art of living by learning the best, in quotes, ways of doing things to achieve the desired, in quotes, result. Now, what could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> the problem is, sounds good. The problem is, where do you go to find the best ways? That's where the world has all kinds of contradictory answers. What should be the desired result? That's where the world will lead you astray. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes if you don't think so. The world world will tell you the desired result is family life. Or the desired result is riches. Or the desired result is getting an advanced degree. They they say all of those things. It's, It's to leave a legacy. It's to have a good reputation. It's to be a sexual animal. You may say, how do you say that? Because I I, I observe. I observe the messages that are going out as to what means your success in life. He who dies with the most toys wins. Make sure your bucket list is empty by the time you die. That's what the world says. Are Are any of those desired results according to God? No. That's the problem with worldly wisdom. Makes you think that you've mastered the art of living, but you really haven't. So wisdom of the, any wisdom answers questions, how do I? How is this done? But the world will give you one set of answers and the Lord will give you the opposite. How should we live? Isn't that the question? The world will give you all the answers. They will provide answers to the questions people have about all aspects of the human condition. 
how to live, how to make money, how to have a happy marriage, happy family. Is it that easy? Can the world tell you, you know, they always want to do step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. Right? First communicate. Then this. Then that. Then that. As if we could do all of that. Or as if that, which is out of the minds of men, is really the secret to happiness. It's not. So the world's wisdom will give you all kinds of answers. The problem is none of them are the right answer. Wisdom of God, by the way, answers the same questions. It's not as if the questions are any different. I mean, mankind has questions about how to live, has questions about what, what, how to deal with death, how to develop character. These are questions, and they're legitimate ones. And the issue is, where do you find the answers? Because the wisdom of God answers every one of those questions, and those are the true answers. The truth. Well, we're going to take a look. There's all kinds of questions that human beings want to know the answer to. We're going to take a look at two. All right. First of all, how is character built? How is character? We, call, we talk about character. How is it built? We're going to look at what the world says and what the word says. And then secondly, and most importantly actually, the biggest question of all, the one that has stymied the world forever, how do you deal with the greatest human problem? Death. Death. We're going to look at what the world says about it and what God says about it. How the world tries to deal with it and how God has dealt with it. Well, in preparing for today, I was looking at the quotes from the wise people of the world and started paying attention to what they say about building character. And I selected one, but it's representative of all of them. Here's it. This is the advice on how to build character. Sow a thought and you will reap an action. Sow an act and you will reap a habit. Sow a habit and you will develop and reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Now, to whom does this sound good? I'll be honest, it, sounds, it sounded good to me. I remember learning this years ago. It sounded like, yeah, I was going to do all that. Who was going to do all that, though? I. That's the problem with it. It's as if we have total control over all these things. As if we know which thoughts. See, that quote's fine, but what thoughts? <laughs> what actions? What habits? And what is character? And does it really, do I really do it all through my own thoughts? Is that really what all that matters? And then, does character really develop the destiny that I want? See, desired answers. No, this doesn't work. Sounds wise. In fact, if you gave that to a lot of people, maybe even some people here, they might think, wow, that sounds like it's right out of the Bible. It's so wise. And by the way, the more self-confident you are, the more likely you say that's true. You'll agree with this man. Who's the man? Ralph Waldo Emerson. He's the one who came up with that. But it's a lie. It's based on a totally flawed view of human nature. Namely, that man is basically good. That man can start out on this course by his own thoughts, leads to his own actions, and so forth. Man is good. He can do that all by himself. Look who's doing everything. Who's doing everything here? You. You reap the action. You sow the thought. You reap your habits. You develop character. You make master of your own destiny. That's the problem. Who's completely missing? Simply, right? These things aren't complicated. 
right? Look for the I's and the U's. Those are the danger zones. Look for God. That's where you want to be. Okay. Speaking of God, what is the wisdom of God when it comes to building character? I won't leave you in suspense. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, faith in who? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? We already have peace with God. Bless you. That's the greatest destiny we already have. Resurrection body is a great destiny. We already have promised. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through Him. Also, we've obtained our introduction by faith, notice this, into this grace in which we stand. That's how you develop character. No, you don't even develop it. That's how character is developed in you. Grace of God. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. By the way, does this say we put ourselves into our tribulations? We do it? No, it says God has ordained them and we just learn to exalt in them. Why? Because we know things. We know what? That the tribulation brings about perseverance. Well, who brings it about? Do we do it? God does it in His grace. Perseverance develops proven character. Do we develop the character? No, God does. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so forth. God does it. And proven character leads to hope. And hope does not disappoint Why? Because we've done it. We've gotten to the top of our mountain by our thoughts and our decisions and our habits and our actions. No, it doesn't disappoint for one reason. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's all about God. You see, it's the grace of God that matters. And you know something? Grace is the one thing, not the only thing, but it's something the world can never understand. It can never understand grace. Why? Because it's spiritually appraised. We couldn't understand it either if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit explaining it to us. Okay, briefly, I'm going to touch on death, world's wisdom, the human race over thousands of years has, has churned out all kinds of potential strategies to deal with death. I'm going to read these quickly. This is just a small sampling. Some people deny it exists, at least in practice. Some say it's inevitable, you just need to be courageous when it comes. Others say, get all the gusto out of life and then die. Or fight it. Fight, don't let death win. Have you ever heard that? Don't let death win. Guess what? That's a losing battle. You know, postpone it as long as possible. You know, use the healthcare system and postpone it. Create a legacy that will outlive you. A lot of people think that. If I create a legacy, if I have my name on some buildings, if, I'm, if I have a reputation and it goes into the history books even, that'll, I'll live through that even when I'm dead. Some people believe in reincarnation. Why? Because they want to solve the problem of death. People live on through their family. They think, I'm just going to have a great family. And as they go along, I'm living in them. That's their solution to death. Some people 
this is the ancient world, especially kings and so forth, get buried in the most elaborate tomb possible. That's how the world tries to deal with death. Well, how did God in his wisdom solve the problem of death? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He gave us Christ. Christ died for all our sins. Right? The sting of death is sin. Took care of it. His purpose. His grace. The gospel. Jesus Christ appeared, died for our sins, and abolished death. He's brought immortality to light. All things belong to us, as we see in verse 22 and 23. Everything. Because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Please look now at Corinthians. Let's go to the second paragraph. In the interest of time, I'm skipping over a couple of things. All right. 1 Corinthians 4.1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, willing to do the most menial labor on behalf of the Master, Stewards of the mysteries of God. And we must protect those things as they are precious. What's the key, though? What is God looking for in his stewards? In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one may be found trustworthy. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for faithfulness. Trustworthy. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. We trust in him and we develop faithfulness. That's what he's looking for. He develops faithfulness. Verse 3, but to me it is a very small thing. It's trivial that I may be examined by you. Go ahead. It's trivial. Or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I'm not by this acquitted. Even if my conscience is clear, that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. Because I don't know everything. I can deceive myself. The one who examines me, you, all of us, is the Lord. And therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. What time? Next week? When you have a chance to get back with Adam? No. When the Lord comes. That time. Only then. Wait, because then he'll bring everything to light. And he'll disclose what's inside people's hearts. And then, then and only then will the reward come. Each man's praise will come to him from God. Servants, stewards, serve the master only, not the rest of the household. You know, if the Lord said, I want you to serve peace tonight, and then you go out there and they're all booing, boo, no peace, right? Are you going to go in there and change the menu? No, why? Because you report to the master. That's the same thing with pastors and elders. Can't be appealing to the crowd. And you know, here's the other thing. Again, I mentioned this already. What yardstick does God use when he evaluates? When he evaluates your performance, what will matter to him? Faithfulness. Not big churches. Not doing this and doing that. Oh, that might be what his calling is, and that's fine. But, I, but it's faithfulness to what he has entrusted with you. Faithfulness to that. Doing the duties that he's asked you to do. And by the way, that how faithful somebody is to the charge that the Lord has given them is only known by the Lord. We always think we know. 
we look at one evangelist and say, well, they all ought to be doing that. We, we look at one person who has the gift of giving and we say, he's not doing it right. This is doing it right. How do we know? How do we know what the charge is the Lord has given a man or a woman? We don't. Only the Lord does. The Lord knows, when we judge, the Lord knows that our heart is wrong, that it's deceitful, it's sick, and no one can understand it. So Paul pays no attention to the critics. Neither should you. Pay no attention to the critics. Pay no no attention, particularly with people who want to sit in the stands and boo you when you're supposedly doing something wrong. But they're in the stands and you're in the arena. Why? Because you're walking and they're sitting. You're running and they're sitting. They're ordering popcorn. No. He realizes also again that his own conscience is unreliable. Imagine that. Ignore all the critics, including your conscience. That's what he's saying. And that's not the wisdom of the world. Here, the world thinks like a philosopher from Rome named Seneca. By the way, he lived in the first century. He was born in 4 B.C. Some people think that was the year Christ was born. He met Paul. No, his older brother met Paul. You can check that out in Acts 18. Well, here's what he said about how we should evaluate ourselves. Notice this. Can anything be more excellent than this practice of thoroughly sifting the whole day? How delightful the sleep that follows. Here's the lie, by the way. The self-examination. How tranquil it is. How deep and untroubled. When the soul has either praised or admonished itself that day. It's all about me and my soul. When the secret examiner and critic of self has given report of its own character. Imagine that. Every day, this critic, which is your conscience, gives you a report on your character. I don't know. Yeah, that sounds like hell. Literally. To go through that. Critique and evaluate yourself all day. Get to the end of the day and pass a verdict on yourself. Notice this, though. This is where it ends. I avail myself of this privilege and notice this. Every day I plead my cause before who? Who should it be? Well, nobody. But if anything, it would be God. He doesn't say that. He says, every day I plead my cause before the bar of self. I think that brings out the problem with trying to use your conscience to evaluate your conduct. That's, he's a complete fool when he wrote that, Seneca. But this is accurate when it comes to the wisdom of the world and self-improvement and so forth. Paul had none of it. He was not haunted by guilt. He was not haunted by the burden of consciousness of his sins. He knows that there's only one judge who counts. The Lord. Make sure you know that. He knew that there's only one judgment that will count. It's in the future. It's when the Lord comes back. One judge, the Lord. Not yourself, not others. One judgment when the Lord comes back. Not this week, not next. Not, not when, when you're at the end of a certain part of your life and you look back on it or people are criticizing it. None of that matters. One judge, one judgment. And God wants each of us to, ev- to adopt the same attitude. It doesn't matter how others judge you, evaluate you, pass judgment on you. It doesn't even matter how you evaluate yourself. And because why? Any judgment, any judgment that is made before Christ returns is premature. The timing is off. 
After all, it is futile to critique your performance while the race is still in progress. Isn't it? You imagine, can you imagine a runner who is critiquing like Seneca wants to every step? Ooh, I was a little, oh, 30 degrees to the right. Oh, he's not going to finish the race. And he's a mess all the way through. Right? No, it's real simple. Run. Don't critique yourself. Don't listen to what other people are critiquing you about. Run the race that God has given you to run. Keep your eyes on what lies ahead. Just keep running. It ain't over until... You have two answers here that are popular. Either the fat lady sings or it's over. Right? It ain't over till it's over. He who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I'm just going to close with this. When you think this way, you will enjoy a remarkable freedom. Right? I have, Jesus said, I have come to set them free. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Well, here's a practical example. When you stop listening to people who are critiquing and passing verdicts on you, when you start, stop torturing yourself every day, You'll be freed. You'll be freed from that endless self-absorption. You'll be freed from any judgments anybody makes about you. You're free from a tortured conscience and soul. And then finally, just want you to notice this. What's the reward for being faithful, for running the race? It's simple. Praise from God. There's nothing better than that. You know, you can give me streets of gold, you can give me crowns and all of that, and that's great. But nothing compares to the Lord looking at your life and finding the praiseworthy in it. Seeing where you've been faithful. Seeing where you were uh, trustworthy with something He's given you. Whether it be finances, or the word to be preached, or children to raise, or whatever it is. Faithful. Then you get the reward of praise from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Good job completing your race. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you've packed into this passage today. We ask most importantly, though, that we be guided by the Spirit with the truth of the Word of God. And that we would simply go forward in what you've asked for us to do. And that as we do so, we know that we're powered by the Spirit. We walk by means of the Spirit. And we're guided by your Word. And uh, help us to realize what things really matter. The things of Christ, the things of God, you, and things of the Spirit. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Bible study on Thursday, 7 o'clock. Following week, there won't be Bible study. All right. So the 16th, yes. 23rd, no. I'll announce it again next week. All right, we're going to have our outreach session in about 10 minutes in the family room. Won't last long. I promise. I always promise this and I never. But really, really, truly, honestly, somebody can time me. All right, we're going to start at 1125 and we're going to end before quarter 12. If a quarter of 12 hits and I'm in mid-sentence, just cut me off. And that'll be that. All right, remember the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. Believing that, 
believing that God died for you, Christ died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Believe that and you'll be saved. All right, let's close in prayer one more time. Father, I want to thank you again for all your gifts. We also thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to give a reason for the hope that's within us when we meet the, uh, the, the unsaved, the lost in our presence. And thank you for those opportunities. And we ask that you would help us make the most of them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.